Welcome to the Some Days Here podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. So glad you're here. Some Days Here is a podcast for AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander leaders. In each episode, we discuss how we navigate living in both Eastern and Western worlds and how the unique blend of our experiences influences our faith, our life, and our leadership. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Someday is Here podcast. Uh, you know, this has been such a fun season so far, season four with um, really phenomenal guests. And this next guest I'm introducing to you is uh, a woman that I have wanted to have on the podcast for as long as I have known her. Um, so a real friend in real life. Um, Isabel is a registered dietitian and owner of Women Wise Nutrition, and she helps women who struggle with hormone dysfunctions like PCOS and HA, which she'll probably explain because they're very complicated words, but she helps them to learn how to stop fighting food and start nourishing their bodies with confidence and clarity. Isabel strives to empower women with deeper understanding of their health so they can ultimately live their life of purpose. So I am so grateful for time to be able to connect and I'm just thankful that you're here, Isabel. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am honored to be here and so honored to be part of this community too. This community has served me very well. Oh, I would love to hear how it has. And, we, and after that, we can jump into the questions. Tell me a little bit about what it's meant to you. Totally. I mean, for me, I, I know, Viv, you've known a little bit about this background of mine, but I didn't grow up with a lot of Asian Americans. My school was in kind of an area with mostly white uh, population. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, I wasn't able to put vocabulary to this until I was older, but kind of shoved a lot of pieces of me uh, in a closet, you know, mm -hmm. thought it was weird, thought it was different, thought it was unacceptable or less than. Um, and it really took kind of this community, me kind of diving into better understanding of why my experience is different than so many people that I've known mm -hmm. um, to just uh, have a better experience of myself. Mm -hmm. And I teach this a lot with my clients, but really feeling at home in my body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is important in the context of food and nutrition and health, but Personally, for me, a big part of this journey and being part of this community has been what it means to be in an Asian American body. Oh. So that's been really special. So thank you, Viv, for bringing that into my life. Oh, well, I'm so encouraged to hear that because this is exactly why we exist. And um, I'm just so glad that God allowed our paths to cross when when it did. And I look always look forward to the, the thought of being able to see you and talk more in person. So, well, for my guests who are not familiar with you and your work, I would love before we jump into all of that for you to maybe share a little bit more of your ethnic journey, where you grew up, your family, um, just, yeah, how it's been and, and what you've learned. Mm -hmm. So um, I grew up in Houston, Houston, Texas. However, I grew up kind of in the northern outskirts of Houston uh, called Spring, Texas. Oh, yeah. And so there were, you know, kind of these, these two parts of my life. There was my, I guess you would call it like my nine to five, right? Mm -hmm. So me going to school, me kind of day to day um, experience growing up, mostly 
um, around people who did not look like me, did not have uh, experiences like me, did not have Asian parents like me, right? Mm-hmm. And then I actually went to an Asian American church. Oh. And so it was really interesting having these very polarizing experiences, right? Where, mm-hmm. you know, I was in a, an environment during the day with uh, no Asians and then, you know, at church, only Asians. Mm-hmm. And so, it almost felt like I had to choose one or the other almost. And, you know, I didn't feel quite at home in in either one because, you know, usually during the day that my conversations and interactions um, were different than the conversations and interactions that I had in church. And I think for me too, this has been a big evolving and still growing um, understanding for me is you know, what part of my identity being Asian isn't totally enveloped in my identity as me growing up in the church mm-hmm. as well, right? Mm-hmm. It's so hard to separate those because though they were kind of enmeshed mm-hmm. into to one experience. Um, so that was a lot of me growing up. And um, I think there was a lot of, um, now I can put vocabulary to it, just not really feeling like I could be myself, Mm. right? That Mm. if I was fully myself, then that would be rejected. Um, I still remember in Montessori school, my mom actually came and kind of taught about our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, there was like once a month, one of the moms would come in, like, you know, she was wearing like the traditional chi pao Mm -hmm. and she was like, she brought fried rice. And I remember afterwards we were, you know, in the playground with all the kids. And one of the kids asked me like, is there a dog in here? And I still remember that it's just so wild. And I can only imagine how that continued to kind of sit in the back of my brain and just kind of dictate how I carried myself and how I thought I, I should be. Um, so a lot of, you know, pieces to kind Mm -hmm. of put together that shaped my experience as an Asian American. So your parents, when did they, did they immigrate to the U S or were they second, third, fourth generation, or what was their Mm -hmm. story? So they they did immigrate, uh, to the U S. Um, they attended grad school, Mm -hmm. um, in New Jersey and that's where they met. And then they had my sister in New Jersey and then work brought my dad to Houston. And then that's where I was ultimately born. And my brother was born. Okay. So did you like speak Chinese at home or what was, what was that like? Did you, were you like, I I'm relating a lot to this as well. Like my, my parents also immigrated through the education route, met in grad school. Um, I was born when they were working on the PhDs kind of a thing. So, um, yeah, for you, like what was home life like, um, when you talk about living in two worlds, like describe a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel very blessed in the way that my mom really celebrated our culture at home to a certain extent. I would say she cooked Chinese food every single night, which, you know, now that I have an understanding of what entails that task, I mean, I'm just so blown away and so grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, us bratty kids wanting like spaghetti and meatballs <laughs> and, 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 you know, she's toiling away oh. this wonderful feast yes. every, every evening. Yep. Um, so that is a big part of um, a special memory when I think mm-hmm. about me growing up in an Asian household. 
Um, and we did speak Mandarin, mm-hmm. um, but it's really funny. You know, my sister's Mandarin's really good. Mine's pretty good. And then my brother's kind of like dwindles, right? <laughs> because the siblings start speaking English together. Yes. Um, but uh, it is something that I will continue to want to protect and mm-hmm. pass on. Um, in fact, you know, me and my husband, we talk about like sending our kids to Chinese school <laughs> because I think language just carries so much. It's mm-hmm. not even just about the vocabulary, but what certain things mean, right? The mm-hmm. the tone and, and the spirit behind a lot of the language. Yeah. So I'm very proud to have that. Oh, that's wonderful. I know that most of my um, Chinese American friends are any Asian American friend that had to go to Chinese school, Korean school, Japanese school, it was just dreaded, like, oh, no, like, we're already in school five days a week. And, and it's kind of like piano lessons. It's like one of those things where it's like, looking back, like, oh, I hated it. But I'm so glad that, you know, my parents made me stick with it a little bit longer. And I still regret that I dropped piano lessons to be a cheerleader. And I just think, oh, I was just about to turn the corner where I could sight read. And now it's just, you know, lost. But language, I agree, is there's so much richness, even in translation. Like when I can I can watch a movie like Shang-Chi and I can track with the conversation if you're like this, and I can understand that, you know, that translation that you use isn't exactly accurate. You know, is that like, is that for you as well? Yes. Yeah. It, I'm always like disappointed that it doesn't like do it justice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the, the spirit of it, whether it's like a sense of care or, you know, a, a, a reference, right? So, so much of that you can't even put to words. You kind of have to be a part of the language to get to enjoy. And so I I never want to lose that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that's such a gift. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I grew up also just, uh, for me, it was really wishing that I could be like everyone around me. And, you know, the embarrassing lunch and, you know, the the familiar story of all of, you know, a similar experience with so many of us. Uh, But the older I get, the more I admire my parents for what they walked through and uh, what they going to grad school in a second language continues to blow me away. Like <laughs> Just how, how did you do that? So I, my respect has grown, but I think growing up, what I saw on TV and how families on TV dealt with conflict or, you know, how they were so affectionate with their kids and told them they were, they loved them or they were proud of them. It was just so unfamiliar. And I would look at my family and just go, we are not what I see around me or on the screen. Um, was that some of your experience as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest transition for me is not real, is how do I put this? Not thinking that everything that is different was wrong mm-hmm. or less than. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even put words to that maybe a, a few years ago, but I think a lot of that um, growing up because I was in the minority just felt like it wasn't the right way mm-hmm. to do things. Yeah. So if my parents didn't offer that type of affection or didn't say certain things or were more strict in certain areas, that that was not the best way to be. Mm. And I think now being able to have a greater appreciation for it. And also I think seeing it in context, Mm. um, I was able to go back to Taiwan a, a few years ago and just understanding where my parents come from, their friends, their culture, and 
just seeing something not just in isolation, right, in the mm-hmm. states, but among all the different parts that make it so valuable and give it purpose and give it um, vocabulary. Mm-hmm. That just gave me so much of a better appreciation for where they came from, what they were um, offering, and how are they were raising me. And um, it, it's just something really um, that gives me a sense of peace mm-hmm. that that I can carry something that's so different and valuable and is a gem, not mm-hmm. something to, to hide or be ashamed of. Totally. I love that. Well, how did you go from, you know, growing up in Texas and choosing the route that you chose to go into becoming a dietitian and starting your own company? Like, t- tell us a little about that story. Mm. Oh gosh, we could be here all day talking about that. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's been quite a journey. I wouldn't say, you know, I uh, was born thinking I just wanted to be a dietitian, and that was my dream, and that was my path. I think it was kind of ever evolving. Um, I went into uh, college uh, studying natural sciences, but wasn't really sure what direction I wanted to take it, and so. I actually fell in love with nutrition with my first professor. She was so incredible, so passionate, and she just sold me on nutrition. Um, The class was nutrition through the life cycles. And so understanding how nutrition evolves from when we're born to when we're teens, to when we're adults, to when we age. And it's just, it was such a fascinating thing for me. Um, and then my first job again, kind of just by chance, one of my friends messaged me at her job. She was a dietitian and she said, Hey, there's a position here. And I think you would be a really good fit. And it was in a mental health agency where we were working with, uh, not just clients with eating disorders, but also, uh, coexisting with depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, things like mm-hmm. that. And so it really offered me, I think, a deeper perspective on nutrition. They don't really teach you a lot of that stuff in yeah. nutrition school. They mm-hmm. mostly teach you, you know, calories, carbs, proteins, weight, things like that, which honestly isn't very helpful when you're working with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt like that was a, a really special opportunity for me just to actually understand what is the problem when it comes to people and food and their health? It's not just this lack of knowledge, right? right. And they're not just doing the right thing, but there's so many things internally mm. that get in the way. Um, and by internally, I mean, physiologically, but also mentally, emotionally, in our context, like culturally, yeah. right? We're, we're not talking about that stuff. Yeah. And so um, that I think really sparked um, my perspective and approach mm. towards food. I didn't want to just write meal plans and tell people what to eat, but really wanted to counsel people through their internal blocks of what was going on. Mm. And then I would say a layer on that would be my own experience um, with disordered eating Mm -hmm. as well as hormone dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, I was diagnosed with PCOS a little while ago and that just uh, added another layer, Mm -hmm. right? Of, wow, there's these physiological aspects, these hormone imbalances that affect our appetite affect our perspective, affect our cravings. Mm. And if women could understand that, Mm -hmm. right, rather than feel like there's something wrong with them because they're craving certain foods all the time or feeling out of control with food, Mm. um, they could feel so much more at home in their bodies and not be afraid 
of their bodies, that their bodies are going to implode or do all these terrible things, but that we can trust them. Mm -hmm. And so that's a, a big kind of cornerstone of my work with women is allowing women to trust their bodies and uh, know that they're doing good things for them. Oh, good. Can you uh, explain what PCOS is and, you know, uh, and I've heard you refer often to disordered eating, you know, um, why you use those terms. Um, yeah. Can you, yeah, I would love for you to explain some more of those terms and, and help us to, to learn. Of course. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, it's a metabolic and endocrine disorder. Um, and the way it gets diagnosed is you have to meet three or two out of three criteria. So irregular periods, um, androgenic symptoms, um, and the appearance of polycystic ovaries via, via ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So if you get two of those out of the three, mm -hmm. then they diagnose you with PCOS. Okay. However, the experience of PCOS is so much more than just those three criteria. Mm. For most women with PCOS, they also experience a lot of fluctuations in their weight. They mm -hmm. feel like they have strong cravings all the time, um, a lot of fertility issues. Mm. So that brings on not just the physiological challenges, but the mental emotional challenges that come with that. Yeah. Um, so it goes much deeper. Mm. And so unfortunately, a lot of women, they get diagnosed with PCOS um, in their doctor's office, mm. but they're experiencing this whole other thing outside of the doctor's office that isn't being addressed because those boxes are just being checked and they're getting sent mm. on their way. Wow. Um, so that's why I have such a passion to help women with PCOS because they're very, um, unheard population. Mm. And they are also more vulnerable to disordered eating. Okay. Um, and what disordered eating is kind of in contrast to eating disorders mm. is eating disorders, you meet specific criteria in the DSM five to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. Okay. Disordered eating is just more of a spectrum. It's more behavioral, right? You may struggle with um, restriction and then some binge-like episodes, emotional eating, chaotic eating. Mm -hmm. um, it's less, you know, these are the defined lines. Mm -hmm. um, usually uh, women who experience disordered eating don't feel like they qualify for an eating disorder. And so okay. they don't get help with uh, their struggles with food. And so I think having vocabulary, being able to name it, hey, this may not be an eating disorder, but this is disordered eating mm -hmm. also just allows women to say, hey, that means I can get help right. for this thing. Right. So um, that's super, super important. Um, so why these two things really show up together mm. is because women PCOS has, have actually been shown to be vul more vulnerable to anxiety, to depression, mm -hmm. um, to a lot of uh, psychological challenges. Yeah. And that can manifest through food, right? And yeah. especially if they're struggling with their weight, they're struggling with cravings, they're feeling insatiable all day. Mm -hmm. Well, all of a sudden that dries up anxiety that can make them feel like they need to try something extreme that can mm -hmm. make them feel like they need to ignore their hunger, which then really perpetuates a lot of chaotic eating behaviors. So as you can see, much more complex yes, right, than just yes. those diagnostic tools. I'm so glad that there are places that like what you offer then because so many would just walk on with, you know, some, you know, whatever's written by the doctor, but not be able to have the whole picture and be able to treat holistically as well. Would you be willing to share some of your journey with your eating disorder and how that 
impacted you and how that even brought you to working with other women? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my started in around um, end of college, I would say. Uh, so what triggered it was I was all of a sudden just experiencing kind of all those symptoms that I mentioned, mm -hmm. the, the weight gain, the strong cravings. I remember eating like a huge breakfast um, in my dorm room and still feeling like I could eat a whole other breakfast. And it was very confusing to me, you know, when a lot, a lot of this is happening, there wasn't a lot of education on PCOS. Mm -hmm. It's the first time I was experiencing this. And so unfortunately I was also in nutrition school. Mm -hmm. So I had um, the abundance of education on calories and weight and how to manipulate it. Mm -hmm. And so I actually ended up misusing a lot of those tools mm -hmm. uh, just to kind of gain control around something that felt so out of control. Um, fast forward, I, I remember I was just, you know, sitting in my room kind of Googling, you know, frantically what was going on. Yeah. And I came across this article about PCOS and it just totally blew me away that it listed these symptoms, wow. right. Of insatiable appetite of weight fluctuations mm -hmm. of even anxiety and things of that nature. When I thought that was just all something that had to do with me, mm -hmm. that there was something wrong mm -hmm. with me, mm -hmm. but to know that this is actually a metabolic experience. It wasn't that I had no self-control around food, that I couldn't just, you know, get it together, mm -hmm. that there was so much more than I could see that offered me so much relief. Mm. And so that really sent me down this trail of really becoming educated, not just for myself, but as a practitioner mm. to help women find that clarity mm -hmm. so that they can stop being so hard on themselves. Yeah. And stop beating themselves up and feeling like they need to fix their bodies to control their bodies, really ebb and flow mm -hmm. with their bodies, um, especially as believers, mm -hmm. right? To live in this body and yet believe that it's this terrible thing. I mean, that is creating a, a war zone, mm -hmm. right? Every mm -hmm. single day. Sure. And so knowing that these bodies are good bodies mm -hmm. because they're created by a good God. I mean, that's where the magic happens, mm -hmm. right? That's when now we can really start talking about how to heal this body mm -hmm. because we're not trying to fix it. We're not trying mm -hmm. to override it um, because it's working in our favor. Oh, that's so good. Did you know Rower Relocation Center Memorial Cemetery in Desha County, Arkansas is one of only three existent Japanese American confinement site cemeteries in the U.S.? In 1992, it was designated a National Historic Landmark. Executive Order 9066, signed by President Roosevelt in 1942, authorized the U.S. military to forcibly remove Japanese Americans and those of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. Rower was one of only two confinement sites located in the eastern half of the U.S. Over two-thirds of its 10,000 incarcerees were American citizens. From this group, volunteers enlisted in the U.S. Army and fought with the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, one of the most highly decorated and respected military units. Japanese Americans incarcerated at Rower from 1942 to 1945 
designed and built the cemetery which sat on 500 acres of farmland. In the 1982 dedication, a granite monument was erected to commemorate both the incarcerees who died at Rower and those who died while serving in World War II. And that's this week's Did You Know? When women find you, what what does treatment look like? How do you, um, yeah, how does a woman who maybe like listening and thinking, gosh, some of these things seem to resonate with me. Um, what are the steps or how do they get uh, plugged in? What does treatment look like? Um, how do you treat women with disordered eating or an eating disorder or PCOS? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so there's two tracks that I offer and it depends on what would be a good fit for um, an individual. I work one-on-one with women within private counseling. And then I also offer a group program twice a year that basically uh, leads a group of women through kind of a guided course. Mm -hmm. Um, It's basically the same process that I offer my private clients. Mm -hmm. However, um, there's more curriculum that my clients can kind of watch on their own time. They are also connected with a group of like-minded women. So they don't feel alone. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful just to see those women say, oh my gosh, I didn't know someone felt that way. Or I was, Mm -hmm. I felt so much shame for experiencing that. I didn't know this was something that was common. Mm -hmm. And so that's super, super powerful in the context of the group. Um, But for both of, you know, these uh, different service options, really what we do is we start with a thorough assessment. Mm. And I think this is a really important piece because a lot of women are just kind of throwing spaghetti out of the wall and hoping something sticks, right? right? right. Googling everything, trying everything, supplements, cutting out Mm. foods, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. And really we need to understand the person, Mm -hmm. right? So that we can offer a unique approach that is customized to them. So that's assessing their physiological needs, their hormones. So we look at, you know, estrogen, progesterone, Mm -hmm. testosterone, cortisol. We look at all that through hormone testing. And then we also do an assessment of their relationship with food, Mm -hmm. right? Because if we're not assessing for that, then we can say, okay, your hormones are out of balance. This is what you need to do with food. That could trigger this huge stress response in them, right? Oh my gosh, you mean I have to change it, but what if I can't eat this again, right? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I'm going to, right? It creates all that fear, which is really what is at the core Mm -hmm. of disordered eating. Mm -hmm. And so we have to address that because if we're not addressing that, then I don't care if I give them the perfect meal plan, that meal plan is not going to be helpful, right? right? Tools are tools, but depending on who uses them, that makes the tool either harmful or or helpful. Mm. So that's a big piece um, of the process Mm -hmm. is addressing the person and making sure the person is ready to use a tool, Mm -hmm. which is nutrition in a beneficial way, right? Food is meant to heal. It is meant to nourish our bodies. But because of all the distorted information, very often food is used to harm, Mm -hmm. right? Or to punish. Mm -hmm. And so we have to kind of shelf the tool for a little while and Mm -hmm. make sure the person is healed and ready before we kind of use nutrition in a way that could serve them well. That makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, it's so interesting because I I see different friends kind of going after like Whole30 or Paleo or... um, 
you know, whatever the latest, newest thing is, um, what is your opinion on some of those things as a, as a dietitian? Mm -hmm. I always say like, kind of like what I was saying earlier, right? These are all tools mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you have some dietitians who say, you know, any diet is the worst diet out there. Don't try any diet. And, you know, I definitely think that diets can be harmful to a certain extent. Um, but I don't think the diet themselves very often are harmful unless mm -hmm. it's just some crazy diet where you're eating, I don't know, grapefruit every single day. Like we understand those, right? But a, a lot of times I think some diets can actually offer a lot of education. Mm -hmm. um, and for a lot of my clients, very often our process isn't, let's just throw that all out the window, mm -hmm. but hey, what did you learn from that? What was helpful mm -hmm. and what was harmful? Mm -hmm. So it puts them in the driver's seat, right? So let's say, for example, with Whole30, maybe they said, you know, it really helped me learn how to cook for myself, mm -hmm. but I was also hungry all the time. Mm -hmm. I had cravings all the time. I was really low energy. And we honor that, right? Rather than say, well, that just means you didn't follow Whole30, right? We say, okay, what does that mean about you mm -hmm. and how your body's unique and how can we fine tune your nutrition so that you can feel your best mm -hmm. and we're not following these legalistic rules. So I like to kind of hold all those things loosely mm -hmm. so that they can make decisions for themselves. And it's not the diet that works or doesn't work but it's about the individual yeah, at the end of the day. Yeah, I love what you're describing because to me it's, it speaks of health, like health emotionally, relationally, with food, um, physically, that it's we're not separate entities. We're all encased as a whole person. And so the approach seems very holistic. And in that way, um, it really had, it starts to uncover uh, motivations and um, the thinking because our minds are also at play. And uh, I, I find that really fascinating. Now, we've just been in a season of, you know, or coming out of a season where we were in lockdown and things were all crazy and everyone started making sourdough, including me. I'm late on the sourdough thing, but, you know, it's just like, you know, um, exploring food but i think in in many ways it's i'm seeing in my own life disordered eating where you know out of whether it was stress or boredom or the unknown it was easy to turn to food for comfort um, do you have advice to those of us who just you know we we've come out of a hard time and mm -hmm. we had looked to food to be a source of comfort um, and maybe excessively? I mean, the first thing I would say is there's a lot of worse coping strategies out there than food. Yeah, you know, true. I think this is true. We, <laughs> we are so quick to feel like using food as a coping mechanism is the worst thing possible because of what we're afraid that will do, mm -hmm. right? Which is weight gain right? Or looking like we are out of control or not being healthy. These labels that actually carry a lot of moral weight mm -hmm. to them. So I always think that's really important for us to point out. Yeah. There's so much more wiggle room for using Netflix to cope. And yet yeah. using food to cope is, oh, we have to fix this. We mm -hmm. have to resolve this. So I think that's first 
and foremost, the most important thing to address. Now, if you're noticing that that doesn't feel good for you, Mm -hmm. right. And that feels chaotic and you're like, you know, this isn't really working for me. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm leaning on this a lot and it's not really helping me, you know, get through. Um, I would say it's as important to find alternative coping mechanisms, um, as it is to just understand that you are doing the best you can. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times when people are using food as emotion, um, an emotional support, Mm -hmm. they're saying, okay, well, I'm going to stop emotional eating. So, you know, they throw all the brownies crackers out Mm -hmm. out of the door. Great. But now what we have is an open wound, Mm -hmm. right. That you were leaning on something, whether it is boredom or loneliness or fear the future, you were trying to buffer that with food. Now we just have that emotion raw out in the air. We got to do something with that, right. That needs healing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's actually a uh, therapist who said, I'm going to try to quote it correctly. His name is Richard Schwartz. He says, um, our impulses are a trailhead to what needs to be healed. I love that quote because I think we so often look at our impulses, right? Our cravings, um, eating emotionally, whatever it is as the problem, I need to solve this. Mm -hmm. I need to fix it. Mm -hmm. It's actually clues to better understand what needs to be healed. Mm -hmm. And so if we can be less judgmental towards it, Mm -hmm. then we can see, oh, maybe I need to connect Mm -hmm. with people. Maybe I need to reach out um, and ask for help, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And really understand that there's deeper wounds to be healed and that us reaching for food, that's just a symptom. Mm-hmm. And so what's actually the deeper problem so we mm-hmm. can find deeper solutions? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I would, I, what I love about um, even just how you describe things to me is that there's a real uh, gracious approach. It's not condemning and it's not rules-based and it's not one size fits all Um, like really assessing like you said like comprehensively assessing Um, do you have like in your mind like ways that you are you would evaluate like at what point one of your clients would really need you know additional um, help with mental health or that some of these things are are more deeply rooted than what you offer? How do, how do you d- decide that and determine that? I mean, I almost always recommend having a therapist as a part of the treatment team mm-hmm. because I think we just don't know what we don't know, yeah. right? We have these blind spots. We don't know our belief systems. We don't know what our internal narratives are. They just you know, play in the morning, we press play and it's just going and going and going. That's right. Um, you know, they use that analogy of like a fish in water, mm-hmm. right? They don't, the fish doesn't know that they're in water because that's just the, the environment that they are in. That's right. And so I think a therapist can be really helpful in naming that, holding that mirror up and saying, Hey, this is what you're saying. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. What do you believe? Where does mm-hmm. that come from? Yeah. Um, so I love working with a therapist. A lot of my uh, clients um, have therapists mm-hmm. and we actually check in uh, monthly or, you know, every uh, couple weeks just to make sure we're supporting the client holistically. So that's almost, I don't think there's ever a time where I'm like, no, this this person doesn't need (laughs) uh, mental health support. I think there's always room for mental health support. Yeah, that's so good to hear. And I do think the the value of having a team 
you know, just it really everyone has a specialty. And so working together is a great way to bring about holistic healing, like we're talking about. Mm -hmm. That is great. So when you think about running your own company, um, being with clients, leading out in different capacities, what are some of the leadership principles that you live by? Mm. I would say honesty is a real big one for me. Mm. Um, and it's something that I am continually learning how to embody um, as a dietitian, as a nutrition counselor. Um, why I say that is because I think when you're in a kind of client counselor relationship, mm -hmm. very often, at least for me, I have felt this pressure in the past to kind of be the, the perfect all-knowing, mm -hmm. right? Which can which could not be further from the truth or, or to not even really be in the room. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of new vocabulary that I've uh, begun to be able to use to understand why I feel the way I feel mm -hmm. um, when I'm in sessions with my clients. And I think that comes a lot from me growing up as an Asian American mm -hmm. too, with just not taking up space, not mm -hmm. being too loud, right? Not, you know, causing any ruckus. And so Talk I noticed- <laughs> Yes, exact. Don't rock the boat. I think I carried that subconsciously mm -hmm. into my work. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really putting into practice what it means to be honest with my clients when um, maybe I'm I'm confused. I'm like, you know what? I don't really quite understand mm -hmm. that. Can you re-explain that to me? And I know that sounds so simple, but sometimes if you have that idea that you have this image of what a, a session should look like and how to support your clients, things can get kind of lost mm. or even being um, honest with myself, right. And saying, you know, this, that session made me really uncomfortable mm. and that was a really hard session. Mm. And so I don't feel like when I sign off on this, sign off on the session that I just should be able to carry on. Right. Because mm. this is my job. This is what I'm good at. This is what I should do. But it's okay to feel heavy. It's okay to feel like, oh, I need to go and take care of myself or I need to take some deep breaths. I need to process this with someone yeah. without that meaning something about me mm. or um, my inadequacy or inability to be a good dietitian. So honestly, I think encapsulates a lot for me. And I think also allows me to name where I can grow and where I can evolve. And uh that's something that I'm um, just really excited to continually work on. That's great. How did you how did you become aware of that? That's a good question. Um, I think a big part of it was probably feeling really burnt out um, at a certain time in my career and not really understanding why. Um, because logistically, I felt like I did all the things. Like I managed my caseload. I wasn't working these long hours. Um, I felt like I was doing what I love to do. And so I couldn't really put my finger on it. And what I realized what was totally depleting me was this internal narrative, mm. right? That, that tape kind of like what we were talking about mm. of saying, okay, you know, don't say anything here. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, you should know this, right? Oh, don't feel uncomfortable. Like you've been through this before, right? Like all of this is just like, don't do this. You're not allowed to feel this. Yeah. Blah, blah, right. Yeah. So I think that was really just making me feel like I was probably holding my breath, mm -hmm. you know, eight hours a day, which really made me hit a wall. Yeah. And so 
I think allowing my emotions, my capacity, reading my body, allowing myself to check in with my body whenever Mm -hmm. I am working with clients rather than being so enveloped in their story, their emotions, their thoughts, I forget that I'm even in the room. Mm -hmm. It has just allowed me to enjoy my uh, my body and my job um, so much more. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's really appreciate you sharing that. I think that that resonates probably with a lot of uh, women in particular, this message of not taking up space or um, speaking out or being honest, like you said. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that out because it's, um, I think it's experienced uh, in many different environments, what you just described. So I appreciate that so much. I love your Instagram page. It's full of so much helpful knowledge. Um, how do you curate the information? Do you do you just kind of think about things and then you make it beautiful and post about it? Like what is the process for you and how do you just select what you post about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I appreciate you saying that because social media is kind of th- is something that I don't feel like is my forte, but Uh, It's a tool. Mm -hmm. And I think it is a way that I can serve many women. And so I use it, but I hold it loosely. Like sometimes, you know, if I feel like it's not really working for me, it's exhausting me, I'll kind of take a break from it. Mm -hmm. But um, it is something that I think is uh, great for just general education on women's health and disordered eating and hormone health. Curation wise, I would say I'm always thinking about one person whenever Mm -hmm. I'm writing messages uh, on my Instagram. Um, Mm -hmm. There's so many people out there, right, who have different needs. And I think if I was trying to accommodate to everyone's needs and everyone's questions and everyone's hormone imbalances, I think that would just feel really overwhelming Mm -hmm. for me. So not only for my page, but also for my own mental and emotional mm-hmm. health. Whenever I'm writing something, I think of like this one person, right, who comes across um, my page and how I could speak to them yeah. and what they would need on a Monday morning mm-hmm. when they're feeling, you know, the the anxiety of the week, right, or um, what someone who would, you know, be experiencing some period problems and feeling mm-hmm. really down on themselves and really exhausted and yeah. beating themselves up that they can't do more, right? Like what would they need to hear? Mm-hmm. So um, that's usually where my my mind's at. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad you have found it yes. helpful because I think it, that's the purpose mm-hmm. to really empower women no matter yeah. where they are in their life. I mean, for all the negative things about social media, it is a great way to convey information. And in this case, I think very valuable information. So, so please share your Instagram handle now that we're talking about it, but how can people connect with you, Isabel? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So my Instagram is womanwise nutrition. Um, you can also go to my website if you're interested in service options, whether it's with private counseling or with my group program, um, that's womanwisenutrition.com. All the information is on there. Um, so that's where you can find me. That is great. Do you, um, only work with women? Do you, is it expanded to more than women or is it primarily or only exclusively women? Exclusively women, um, and adult women. So I don't work with, um, anyone under 18 because that's just a whole other ball game. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking, you know, parents, we're talking very different 
hormone, a hormonal picture. Uh, so I really specialize in adult hormones and specifically for women. That's great. Well, listeners, please go and follow Isabel everywhere. And um, if you are uh, a male and you have women in your life that you feel like, gosh, this real this conversation makes so much sense, please share Isabel and her great work with all the women in your life. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Isabel, you are a refreshing voice. I appreciate your honesty and your excellence and just the, your, your journey. It's been so beautiful to, to see and be a part of, and I'm just really, really grateful for you. And I think the work that you're doing is so, so important. Thanks for having me. This has been so lovely. I feel so grateful. Someday is here is a production of Ivy media podcast. It's produced and edited by Angie Elkins. Show notes and graphics are by Nikki Ogden. And the original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. To learn more about the Somedays Here community, check us out on the socials at Somedays Here Podcast or at Viv Mabuni on Instagram. <laughs>